Hamlet is the greatest play in the world. It is a play which um, speaks to people across all times and across all ages. It is the world's greatest tragedy. Another distinctive feature of Hamlet is that it is so cosmopolitan. Hamlet is the only play which is set in continental, which is set in continental Europe. Not only is it set in Denmark, the action that takes place is narrated as having taken place in Norway or in England. He alludes to Troy, he alludes to ancient Rome, he alludes to contemporary states. The frame of reference in terms of history, in terms of literature, in terms of geography is extraordinarily wide. If Shakespeare is a global author, Hamlet is a global play. Hi, I'm Paulina Cuse. I'm a professor of English literature at the University of Oxford, and I'm also a tutor and fellow in English at Jesus College, Oxford. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. In this episode, we're speaking with Professor Paulina Cuse about Hamlet. Written around 1600 and based on an ancient Norse legend, Hamlet is still read, performed and enjoyed all around the world. Its iconic moments, the prince dressed in black holding a skull, or pondering the question of to be or not to be, these moments focus our attention inward on the troubled protagonist's mind. But this play also takes us on one of Shakespeare's most extraordinary journeys through time and space, traversing centuries of history and mythology and crossing the European continent. I think we should consider Hamlet as Shakespeare's most global play. That is to say, a play which invites consideration of other periods, other times, other nations, other countries, other states. This play tells the story of Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark. Prince Hamlet is visited by a ghost claiming to be the spirit of his dead father. The ghost tells Hamlet that he was murdered by his brother Claudius, who has become the new king and bypassed any claim of Hamlet's to the throne. The ghost commands Hamlet to avenge his death. The play combines the drama of revenge tragedy with a profound exploration of psychology and politics. It asks questions not only about love, loyalty and family duty, but also about monarchy, despotism, succession and power, issues that rocked England prior to Queen Elizabeth's death in 1603 and that remain with us today as contemporary governments struggle to negotiate the transfer of rule. It's only when we realise that those were the questions that people were trying to think through as they were wondering about the future of the crown of England, that we will begin to appreciate how deeply Hamlet, which is normally seen as simply a psychological drama, how deeply it is engaged with the problems and questions of its time. And it is that engagement with current problems that enables us to see how relevant it is 
Hamlet's real-world engagement starts with its setting, the castle of Elsinore in Denmark. Shakespearean actors, including members of his own company, went as far as Denmark, as far as Elsinore, and they performed before the then King of Denmark, Frederick II, in 1586 at his castle in Elsinore called Kronberg Castle. In 1589, the court at Elsinore was visited by none other but the future King of England, King James VI of Scotland. It was quite an extraordinary public occurrence. Everybody in Europe will have heard that King James of Scotland traveled all the way to Denmark, as did, of course, Shakespeare. James becomes England's new king in 1603, the same year that the first text of Hamlet was published. It's important to know, however, that two distinctly different versions of the play were published later, one in 1604-5 and one in 1623. Our summary is based on the second version, the text of 1604-5. At the start of the play, Denmark has its own new king. King Hamlet, Prince Hamlet's father, has just died and the country is uneasy. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark, as one of the characters proclaims. Sentinels keep watch day and night because Fortinbras, prince of the neighbouring country of Norway, is preparing to invade Denmark. In the opening scene, Prince Hamlet's friend Horatio is out on the battlements with the sentinels and they see a ghost, a ghost that resembles the dead king. In the next scene, we meet the new king, King Hamlet's brother, Claudius. Claudius invites the court to mourn his brother's death, but also to celebrate Claudius' marriage to King Hamlet's widow, Gertrude. Prince Hamlet stands out in this celebratory scene as the one person still in mourning for the old king. Gertrude asks Hamlet why he seems so distraught by something as common as a parent's death. Hamlet answers, Seems, madam. Nay, it is. I know not seems. He insists that his mourning is not just the outward show of his black clothing, but something deeper and more real. I have that within which passes show, these but the trappings and the suits of woe, he says. Shakespeare may have written this play with his own sense of woe. In 1601, he lost his own father, And in 1596, he had lost his only son, Hamnet, a name that sounds strikingly similar to Hamlet. Some scholars speculate that these family tragedies may have shaped Shakespeare's writing of this play. But Hamlet's woe might not be only for his dead father. Claudius announces his support for Hamlet as Denmark's next king, but This announcement only highlights the fact that Hamlet is not king already. He did not succeed to his father's throne. And this, too, might be contributing to his melancholy. Certainly, the question of succession caused deep anxiety in Shakespeare's England. When Hamlet was written, 
England's Queen Elizabeth was around 67 years old, unmarried and childless, and with no clear heir to the throne. Shakespeare engages with the one of the most fundamental problems of his day, which is who would rule after Elizabeth. Hamlet is deeply concerned about the process of regime change, about the politics of regime change, about the proprieties of the royal succession, who should be king, what are the rules that govern the descent of the crown, should it be the eldest son, should it perhaps be the brother. Hamlet approaches this question in a very distinctive way. Hamlet expresses some of his melancholy and anxiety alone on stage after the court disbands, crying, How weary, stale, flat and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. He also expresses his anger and sense of betrayal at his mother's rapid remarriage. We learn that she married Claudius within a month of the old king's death. Next, Horatio arrives to tell Hamlet about the ghost. That night, the prince keeps watch, hoping to see it too. Sure enough, the ghost appears. Hamlet says that the ghost has a questionable shape and that he is unsure whether it is a spirit of health or goblin damned. There's a reason why he isn't sure exactly what the ghost is, and it has to do with the divided religious beliefs of Shakespeare's time. Across the Shakespeare canon, there are references to um, the fundamental schism within Western Christendom, the conflict between Protestants and Catholics. You can see that he's deeply engaged with the religious divisions and tensions of, of the period stemming from the Reformation. According to the old Catholic beliefs, the souls of the dead must go to a realm called purgatory to be purged of the remaining guilt for their earthly sins before they can enter heaven. But after the Reformation, England's new Protestant church rejected these Catholic beliefs. The ghost tells Hamlet that he is confined to a prison where his foul crimes must be purged away, which suggests that he has come from Catholic purgatory. But for a Protestant who did not believe in purgatory, such an apparition could only be a demonic spirit. Hamlet fears the ghost might be a demon from hell. But the ghost says, I am thy father's spirit, and tells Hamlet how he died. He says he was murdered by Claudius. He commands Hamlet to avenge his death, and Hamlet promises to sweep to his revenge. The mechanics of this revenge plot, the thrusts and counter-thrusts between Hamlet and Claudius, make up the external action of the play. But there's also an internal action to the play. Hamlet's reflections and meditations and questions about himself and his troubled world. He ends the first act lamenting, The time is out of joint. Oh, cursed spite that ever I was born to set it right. The first thing Hamlet does in his new role as Revenger is to put on what he calls an antic disposition, to act, that is, like a fool or mad person. 
Claudius is worried, wondering what is causing Hamlet's madness. He asks Hamlet's friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, to figure out what's wrong. Hamlet is disgusted when he realises that his friends have become Claudius's spies. He's happier, though, to see another group of friends, a troop of actors, arrive at court. Hamlet asks them to recite part of a play about the fall of Troy, in which Pyrrhus kills King Priam in revenge for his father's death. Hamlet is so moved by the actor's passionate performance of Pyrrhus that he berates himself for not having similar passion for his father. But he soon realises it isn't simply passion that he needs, but action. He needs to carry out the ghost's demand for vengeance. But one thing that keeps Hamlet from acting is that he still isn't sure what the ghost really is. Is it the real spirit of his father? Or is it a demon trying to get him to damn himself by murdering an innocent man? But Hamlet himself isn't entirely sure whether he has been called to avenge his father by heaven or hell. In fact, he thinks it's both. Did Claudius really kill his father? Hamlet decides to use a fiction to uncover the truth. He'll have the actors stage a play depicting a king's murder and see if Claudius shows any signs of guilt. He declares that the play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. But while Hamlet is planning one performance to unmask the king, the king is planning another performance to unmask Hamlet. Claudius's chief advisor is a man named Polonius, who has two children close to Hamlet's age, a son, Laetes, and a daughter, Ophelia. Hamlet had previously courted Ophelia and promised her his love, but Polonius, afraid that Hamlet's promises were insincere, told Ophelia to reject him. Now, Polonius is afraid that this rejected love is what drove Hamlet mad. So he and Claudius stage an encounter between Hamlet and Ophelia so that they can watch in secret and observe Hamlet's reaction. Hamlet enters, but before he speaks to Ophelia, he speaks to himself. To be or not to be, that is the question. These are some of the most famous lines in Shakespeare. We'll explore this speech and the radical questions it asks about life, death and being in our next two episodes. Hamlet ends the speech on a note of self-disgust. Conscience doth make cowards of us all, he says. But then he directs his disgust towards Ophelia. He denies that he ever loved her and says, Get thee to a nunnery, or, if thou wilt needs marry, marry a fool, for wise men know well enough what monsters you make of them. This violent tirade causes Claudius to fear Hamlet even more. That night, Hamlet stages his play, The Mousetrap. This short play climaxes with a king being murdered in just the way the ghost claims Claudius murdered him. When Claudius calls for light and leaves the theatre, Hamlet has the evidence he needs. He is now sure that Claudius killed his father and is ready for revenge. Claudius attempts to pray for forgiveness for his brother's murder. While he is trying to pray, Hamlet enters. He raises his sword and then hesitates. 
Hamlet realises that if he kills Claudius while he's praying, Claudius's soul will go to heaven, and that would be no revenge at all. Hamlet decides not to kill Claudius until he can send his soul to hell, a desire that can seem morally troubling in itself. I'm trying to invite you to think of Hamlet not as an existential hero, but as someone who could be acted as a Machiavellian villain, almost. I would really love to see a a production of Hamlet where the evil, vengeful nature of Hamlet and, and his lack of moral scruple actually comes across. Hamlet thinks he gets his chance to damn Claudius just a few minutes later. His mother summons him to her chamber. Hamlet hears a noise behind a curtain and, thinking it's Claudius, stabs through the curtain. But he has actually killed Polonius, who was spying on him again. Hamlet then berates his mother for forgetting his father and marrying Claudius. Hamlet accuses her essentially of being blind of lacking sense, of being rotten to the core. The ghost appears to remind Hamlet that his target is Claudius, not Gertrude. But targeting Claudius will be harder now because their roles have reversed. Until now, Hamlet has been hunting Claudius. But after Polonius's murder, Claudius knows that Hamlet is after his life. And so he starts to hunt Hamlet. He sends Hamlet to England with secret orders for his execution. After Hamlet departs for England, the play focuses on the people his actions have hurt. Ophelia goes mad with grief at her father's death and drowns in what is possibly suicide. Her enraged brother Laertes almost starts a rebellion against Claudius. This moment reminds us again of how the play addresses contemporary political concerns. In 1601, around when Shakespeare may have been writing or revising the play, the Earl of Essex led a short-lived rebellion against Queen Elizabeth. What Shakespeare does in Hamlet is to transmute some of the most pressing fundamental questions that exercised both him and his fellow English. Shakespeare invites the audience to think about the forms of transfer of power. Is it better if the monarch is elected? Is it better if he is hereditary? Should the monarch have unlimited power or should his power be somehow checked? Should it be checked by the people or should it be checked by the nobility? All these things come to the fore. Claudius calms Laertes' anger and urges him to direct his revenge against Hamlet, who, they learn, is returning to Denmark. We next see Hamlet and Horatio in a graveyard where Ophelia's grave is being dug. Here, Hamlet encounters the skull of his old friend, the court jester. Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio, he says. He's disturbed by the thought that all humans, even heroes like Alexander the Great, are eventually reduced to bones like these. Hamlet tells Horatio everything that has happened since he left Denmark. On board the ship, Hamlet discovered that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were carrying letters directing the English to execute him. 
Hamlet substituted a new set of letters, directing the English to execute the two messengers instead. Hamlet describes this discovery as coming, in some way, from God's intervention, telling Horatio, There's a divinity that shapes our ends. An attack by pirates allowed Hamlet to escape the ship, and now, back in Denmark, Hamlet seems to place his trust in a guiding divinity again. When Laertes challenges him to a fencing match, Hamlet seems to sense his life is in danger, but decides to accept the challenge anyway. He says, There is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Hamlet is right to be uneasy. Claudius and Laertes have plotted to kill him during the match, either with a poisoned rapier or a poisoned cup of wine. But their plot goes wrong. Gertrude unknowingly takes the poisoned cup. Claudius, unwilling to confess his plot, lets her drink. Laertes wounds Hamlet with the poisoned rapier, but in the fight they swap rapiers and Hamlet wounds Laertes too. As Laertes dies, he confesses the plot to Hamlet. Hamlet strikes Claudius with the poisoned rapier and forces the rest of the poisoned wine down his throat. Claudius, Gertrude and Laertes all die. Knowing he will shortly die too, Hamlet makes a final request. The play opened with the ghost telling Hamlet to remember him. Now, Hamlet instructs Horatio to tell his story. A messenger arrives to tell them that Fortinbras's army has invaded Denmark and Hamlet says that he supports Fortinbras as the new king. But before he can finish telling Horatio what he should say to Fortinbras, the poison cuts him off. The rest is silence, he says, and dies. Fortinbras enters and does indeed take Denmark's throne. But whether we should interpret this as a good thing for Denmark is not clear. Shakespeare doesn't want to appear unequivocally pro or unequivocally against Fortinbras, or Hamlet for that matter. So whether the accession of Fortinbras, whether this is going to be good, bad or indifferent for Denmark is unclear. It's left in in suspense at the end. What is clear, however, is that this complex ending, the fall of one regime, the rise of another, the revenger's success and his death, reflects the play's concern with timeless problems. In its own time, Hamlet raised naturally psychological problems, philosophical problems, moral problems, but it was also very deeply rooted and engaged with the sorts of problems that and questions that exercised contemporaries, whether to do with religious division, whether to do with the succession to the throne, with diplomacy and international relations, with the structure of the family, the structure of the royal court, the importance of travel, war. And it is precisely because Shakespeare and in Hamlet is so engaged with what's happening around him that we find Hamlet endlessly relevant and infinitely appealing. 
In this episode, we paid particular attention to the play's politics. In the next episode, we'll look at its psychological and philosophical problems. We'll explore how Shakespeare created one of the most complex characters in literature and ask how he captured a whole universe of meaning in some of literature's most simple and famous words. To be or not to be, that is the question. <laughs>